As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light onto hidden worlds of money and power. I'm Tom Wright, and if you're joining us for the first time today, you should know Whale Hunting started life as a newsletter. And you can still subscribe to our updates at whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. In our newsletters, and in this podcast, we'll be exploring how the world really works. Who's pulling the levers of power? And how is wealth flowing behind the scenes? This week on Whale Hunting, I'm joined by Simon Willis, writer and journalist for The Economist, Fortune, and the New York Review of Books, among other places, and now host of The Professor, a new podcast series from Brazen and PRX. Hi, Simon. Hi, Tom. So, Simon, in brief, can you explain to us what The Professor is about? The Professor is about uh, a man called William Verres, who is an Anglo-Hungarian art dealer. And Verres is a man in trouble. He is currently on trial in Sicily, on charges of running a pan-European art trafficking ring, um, which is alleged to have stolen 40 million euros worth of art and antiquities from Sicily. This art trafficking ring is alleged to also have had links with the Sicilian mafia. If he is convicted of these crimes, he could go to jail for as much as 20 years. So he's, you know, it's a very, he's in a very serious situation. But he's also got a plan to get himself out of trouble. In collaboration with the Italian anti-mafia police, he's trying to solve the coldest case in the history of art crime, which is the theft of Caravaggio's Nativity in 1969, um, a painting that was stolen in 1969 and hasn't been seen again. So William Verres has been given a deal by Italian prosecutors that basically if he can help them find this Caravaggio painting that's worth $100 million, is on the FBI's top 10 most wanted paintings list, then they will help him potentially by reducing the charges against him for helping sell stolen antiquities. That's correct. Yeah, he, he met with the Italian anti-mafia police um, back in 2021. And during that introduction, they told him that if he was successful in finding this painting, they would speak to the prosecutor in his trial. How did you get involved in this story? How did you get to know William Verres in the first place? I met William Verres towards the end of 2018. Um, I had a contact who was a private investigator, and I was looking for a story about art crime at the time. It was an intriguing world that I was very interested in. And this guy said, well, if you want to know about art crime, you've got to go and meet William Verres. Uh, not only is he accused of being a major art criminal, but he's also about to launch himself on this quest to try and solve this incredibly famous stolen, uh, stolen art case. And so that's how I got to know him. Um, I, I first had lunch with him in the cafe at Sotheby's in London. And he was a very sort of traditional art world figure in one sense. He's a sort of tweedy guy with a moustache and paisley scarves. He's a sort of dapper gentleman uh, in one sense, but he's also someone who occupies this dark world of art smuggling uh, and organized crime. 
And so on our journey together, we sort of inhabit these two worlds, the, you know, the world of auctions and expensive paintings and art world parties, and also the world of uh, organized crime and mafiosi. Well, it's no surprise that the art world is dirty, right? I mean, I, I wrote a book, uh, Billion Dollar Well, where we, you know, Jolo, this huge criminal, was selling, was the biggest art buyer in the world 10 years ago and, and Christie, one of Christie's biggest clients. And William Verres is sort of at the other end of the scale, isn't he? He's not doing huge deals, but he's the guy who helps to connect to the mafia adjacent or mafia figures on the ground who are, who are digging up stuff, grave robbers, those kind of characters, right? Yeah, he is, he is a shadowy figure in a shadowy world. He's sort of a middleman connecting the, the sort of source of stolen art and looted antiquities with the buyers. He's the person who puts those two worlds together. He's the conduit for material coming out of the ground and ending up on you know, museum shelves and collector's walls. So he therefore knows all these people on the ground who have connections to the mafia. And that's why the Italian anti-mafia police think that he may be able to help in the the breaking of this case. So tell us about the Caravaggio that got stolen in 1969 by the Mafia from Sicily. So this is Caravaggio's nativity with St. Francis and St. Lawrence. It was painted around 1600 and it hung for hundreds of years undisturbed in a church in Palermo, a small church in Palermo called the Oratory of San Lorenzo. And then in 1969, October 1969, some thieves came into the church, cut the painting out of its frame and took it away. No one's seen it since. And by following Verres and Verres' investigations into where this painting is, you got to know a hell of a lot about the Italian mafia, right? And, and what I love about the podcast, without giving spoilers, is that as you, as you search with Verres for this painting, all kinds of different shadowy worlds of the Italian mafia are opened up to listeners. That's right. The podcast is in one sense a sort of, uh, you know, a caper because it's about searching for a stolen painting. In another sense, it's a journey deep into Italy's relationship with the mafia and organized crime. Um, which obviously has a long and deep and complicated history and is still ongoing uh, right now. It's a, it's, a, it's a podcast about the relationship between organized crime and Italian politics, organized crime and Italian business. And through this mystery of this painting, all of those worlds collide. Yeah, I would say that, you know, when we think about mafia stories, we think about the New York Don, the, the mobsters of Goodfellas, those kind of characters, right? And, you know, there have been, of course, uh, movies and shows set in, in Italy. But what I love about this is it's taken right up to the, the present day. There's a, a mob boss called uh, Matteo Messina Denaro who, who is arrested recently, actually this year, in Italy. And he plays a big part in all of this. He was involved in bombing the Uffizi Gallery in Florence in the 90s, for example. That's right. I mean, Matteo Messina Denaro is not just a, a very, very heavy mafia criminal, but he was also the mafioso who was most involved in not only the art business, but also a kind of strategy of cultural terrorism that the mafia embarked on in the 1990s. So Matteo Messina Denaro was involved in looting and selling antiquities himself. He made a lot of money out of that. It was part of his mafia business. But at a moment when the Italian mafia were trying to attack the Italian state in the 1990s, Matteo Messina Denaro devised a strategy of cultural terrorism, which involved attacking galleries and museums in Italy uh, with car bombs. It also involved using stolen art in the Mafia's possession as bargaining chips. It was a way of exerting ma the Mafia's power over the Italian state. Yeah, and, and again, it's very hard to talk about this podcast without giving away spoilers, but 
the Caravaggio itself becomes a bargaining chip. That as you go deeper inside the mob in Italy, the people that you knock up against want things from the Italian state. The Italian state wants it back, and they're not going to give it back without without uh, getting their pound of flesh, right? That's exactly right. Yes, yeah, so we meet a guy who is one of these kind of mafia-adjacent characters who's introduced to me as somebody who um, has been involved in arms trading and, and hiding mafia fugitives, as well as being involved in, in the art business, the black market for stolen art. And he, again, is using stolen art as a sort of negotiating tool. He's trying to elicit favours from the state with the promise of returning stolen art, which is, a, which is a mafia strategy and has been for some time. Now, another thing I really loved about The Professor is the, the, the characters at the heart of it. So you've obviously got William Beres, who I think you've become fairly close to over the years that you've followed him on this quest. You know, okay, he's, a, he's an arrested art criminal, but, you know, he comes across as a, as a very likable guy. And he puts his full trust into another character called Arthur Brand, who's well known in the, in the media around the world as this Indiana Jones of the art world. He finds stolen paintings. Pretty amazing profession. He like recently found a stolen Picasso worth $20 million. So you get to know Brand as well. And I love the relationship between Veres and Brand. Veres is sort of dependent on Brand to help him find this Caravaggio that's going to keep him out of jail for 20 years. And you discover through your investigation some pretty interesting things about Brand that are unexpected as well. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, so these are two men who kind of need each other. Veres needs Brand because Brand has the connections in international law enforcement, which can be helpful to, to, to Veres as he tries to get himself out of trouble. And Brand needs Veres because Veres is the person who has all the connections in, in Sicily with the underworld. And Brand finds stolen art, he recovers stolen art, but he relies to a large degree on a network of informants. And, and Veres is one of those informants. He's the person who has the connections, who can elicit information from his contacts and lead Brand to the, the ultimate prize, which is returning these stolen paintings. And Brad is someone, as you say, who's a, who's a very well-known figure in the international media. He recovers very famous stolen paintings like Picasso's and Dali's and Van Gogh's. And often these recoveries are accompanied by stories from Brand of how these artworks were left on his doorstep in Amsterdam in the middle of the night, you know, wrapped in rubbish bags or Ikea bags or bubble wrap. And it sort of seems un unbelievable in a way that this guy can do this. You know, he, how, how does he do it? That's the question with Brand's recoveries is how does he get people to return multi-million dollar paintings and just leave them on his doorstep? And as we follow Brand and Verres on this quest to recover stolen art in Italy, I get much closer, I think, to the truth of how Brand does that. And it's not exactly how he says he does it in the press. Yeah, I think that's one of the, that's one of the most amazing things about the podcast. But you have to listen to it to really find out what happens there. So... In The Professor, we hear you quote from a television interview with Italian journalist Giuseppe Fava. In the interview, Fava said, and I quote, mafiosi are in parliament, mafiosi are sometimes ministers, mafiosi are bankers, mafiosi are those who are at the top of the nation right now. So that interview was in 1983. How much influence does the mafia still have in the Italian government? The mafia still has influence in the Italian government. Only two years ago, in fact, a former justice minister in the government of Silvio Berlusconi was convicted and jailed for, for mafia association, that is, helping the mafia, giving them tip-offs about police investigations, helping mafia fugitives stay under the radar. So absolutely, the mafia still has influence in the Italian government. And that, and that minister that you referred to was actually um, close to Matteo Messina Denaro, 
the mob boss. That's correct. There was this question about Matteo Messina Denaro, as there is about all mafia fugitives. How do they how do they stay hidden? And the answer is they have help. And it's not just help from ordinary people kind of on the ground, letting them sleep in their spare room. It's help at the heart of the system, help from cops, help from judges, help from politicians. Um, and that's the kind of influence that the mafia retains. Right. And it's the same denaro that we were discussing earlier, the one who we believe, you know, uh, had something to do with the painting at some point, the Caravaggio at some point. And so as we try to figure out, or as you try to figure out where the painting is, this connection between Denaro and a minister in Berlusconi's government becomes incredibly important, doesn't it? Right. I think one of the threads running through the show is this question of why has the Caravaggio remained lost for so long? And as I look into the history of the investigations into the whereabouts of this painting, I find a lot of evidence that one of the reasons it's remained lost is because of Italy's relationship with the mafia and, and government complicity and official complicity in mafia crime. Right. And so Verez is really up against it, right? Because he's not just up against the mafia, he's potentially up against the Italian state and its complicity in, in the mafia's doings. Right. As Verez goes on this quest, he discovers, I think, quite how big the stakes are. Uh, it's not just an ordinary stolen painting that is in the hands of some criminals. This is a painting that's become a symbol of the mafia's relationship with Italy and the Italian government. And it's become a bargaining chip in those relationships over the years. So there's a lot more riding on it than just, it's not just a canvas worth a lot of money. It's, uh, it's, it's about a lot more than that. So again, without giving spoilers, how do you know or why do we suspect that the painting is still with the mafia? And why wouldn't they have sold it if, you know, selling these priceless objects is one of the ways that they funded their organization over the years? Well, we know the mafia were involved in this theft because 20 years after the painting was stolen, a mafioso confessed to being involved in stealing it. And over the course of the years, the Italian police have investigated this crime on several occasions. They've talked to a lot of mafiosi. And there is a consistent story that emerges about that, about the mafia's involvement in this crime, which is not only were they involved in taking it, but later they were involved in trying to sell it. Their first motivation was to try and make money out of this, uh, out of this painting. Um, but there's also plenty of evidence that those attempts to sell it did not succeed. The reason for that is it's very hard to sell very famous stolen paintings. If everybody knows it's stolen, no one wants to buy it. Okay, so this mafia, small-time mafia crook admits to taking the painting in 1969 from Palermo, and he does that in the 70s, right? What happens to the Italian authorities' attempts to try to get the painting back after that? The largest investigation actually took place in the 1990s, so almost 30 years after the painting was stolen. And this investigation uncovers not only the people who were involved in stealing it and in handling it in the, in the years immediately after the theft, but also their attempts to sell the painting and to make money out of it. And those th that investigation traces the painting up until 1980. And then really, they lose track of it after that. What we do in our podcast is we take the story much further forward. Verez's mafia sources uh, take it further forward than any police investigation ever have. So we get much closer to the truth. And back, even back then in the, in the 90s, there was uh, an attempt to sort of mothball the investigation, right? And that goes back to the connections between the mafia and people high up in Berlusconi's government, right? Yeah, so in the course of that investigation, uh, a cop in Italy interviews a man called Vittorio Mangano. Vittorio Mangano was someone who was involved in handling the painting after it was stolen. 
And around the time he was doing that, he also had a job working as a bodyguard and kind of general factotum for a Milanese businessman called Silvio Berlusconi, who, of course, later became the Italian prime minister. Um, at that time, Mangano was living in Berlusconi's house in Milan. And that line of inquiry gets frustrated uh, by the prosecutors in Palermo. And the reasons for that are extremely mysterious. Yes, but we can infer probably that nobody wanted to go too close to Berlusconi at the time. Yeah, we can infer that nobody wanted to go too close to Berlusconi. And at that time, Mangano was also um, the subject of criminal investigations related to Berlusconi's involvement with the mafia. So it was a very sensitive subject. You know, you said earlier that, that the Italian state or the police didn't really care too much about art crime because it was heroin that was making big bucks for the mafia back then. And of course, the Caravaggio wouldn't have been worth $100 million back in the 1960s or 70s or 80s, right? I mean, it's, I think art has just inflated in value because it's a great repository of stolen uh, money. That's one reason. And I guess Caravaggio has become a more famous artist um, in recent years as well. That's absolutely right. Although they did steal it because they knew it was expensive. One of the stories that gets told about why it is that the mafia stole this painting is because there, there was a documentary on Italian TV in 1969, which featured the Caravaggio as this great masterpiece that was languishing in this sort of half forgotten church in Palermo. And so everyone in, in Sicily knew about it. And you didn't have to be an art connoisseur to know about the Caravaggio if the Caravaggio was on TV. Uh, all you had to do was have a sort of appetite for for money. <laughs> and the mafia has an appetite for making money. So they did steal it because they knew it was valuable. The interesting thing about the art world, though, as it relates to crime, is that the art world is extremely under-policed. Um, there's very little law enforcement attention paid to art crime in relation, uh, compared with other kinds of crime like drugs or, you know, murder or anything like that. So if you want to launder money, for instance, the art world's a pretty good way of doing it. I was going to say it's it's almost laughable that a, such a valuable painting was just hanging in a church in, in Palermo in the 60s. But now I'm thinking there's actually a famous Caravaggio in the French church in Rome, The I think it's St. Matthew, but I guess it may be a fresco, which is harder to steal. Harder to, harder to steal. Yeah, you need chisels for that. Um, I mean, now, of course, we know about Sicily through TV shows like White Lotus and movies like The Godfather. Back in 1969, Palermo was still really recovering from the Second World War. It had been badly damaged during the Second World War. It was extremely poor. The old town in Palermo, which is where this church is, was, was half abandoned. Uh, so this church was really un unprotected. There were no locks on the doors even. There were no locks on the windows. You could just walk in. It was not hard to steal this painting. It was waiting to happen. So, you know, going deep into the heart of the mafia, they've got all these connections with the state. They're protected. Did you ever feel that you put yourself in harm's way? Well, I definitely met some people who were introduced to me as pretty heavy characters, people who were involved in arms trafficking, in hiding mafia fugitives. I met one man who was a, a mafia hitman who turned state's evidence, and he was a very, very, you know, he was a professional killer. He killed more than 30 people and was close to the, you know, the boss of bosses. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely met some discomforting characters. They were also sometimes surprising. I mean, one of the one of the funny things about my encounter with this mafia hitman is that he now makes money as an artist. And during our interview, he tried to sell me one of his paintings. So, you know, they're not they don't they don't always kind of come across as stone cold killers. These people. Why didn't you buy it? Um, conflict of interest. Oh, you're so you're so you're so righteous. No, I didn't really like them to be honest. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> they just weren't very good. 
what, were they, what were they? Landscapes? Yeah, he paints like little seaside scenes and landscapes. They're cute. They're nice, but not not my thing. Wow. So you got this mafia mafia hitman. Now, was he a hitman? This guy? He was a hitman. Yeah, yeah. Mafia hitman painting seascapes. I love this. So over the course of knowing Veres, which is more than three years at this stage, you obviously became quite close to him, but you're also keeping that journalistic distance. We won't give away what happens to Veres in the, in the show, but do you feel like, you know, you want him to get off? I feel a certain sense of pity for him because he's he's in really, really deep trouble. And I think he's a, I mean, he's obviously in one sense not a trustworthy person uh, because he's implicated in uh, this criminal case, but he's also a likable person. Um, he's a colourful character in a very murky world. Uh, he's a bon vivant, you know, he likes to eat and drink and travel. Uh, he likes fine clothes. Uh, <laughs> and he's a very open person. I think well, the, the secret of William Verres is that he can basically socialize with anybody. Uh, he can go high and he can go low. And that's why he's able to operate across the spectrum of the art world from, you know, rural looters in Sicily to, you know, art world parties in Mayfair. He's equally comfortable in all of these places. He speaks nine languages. He's incredibly international. So, yeah, he's incredibly colourful, and I think that's why I like him. Um, do I trust him? I don't know. I don't think so. Well, congratulations, Simon. It's a fantastic podcast, and uh, I can't wait for everyone to listen to it. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Whale Hunting Podcast. We'll be back next week for more. Make sure to check out The Professor. New episodes are released on Mondays. To listen, just search for The Professor in your favourite podcast app. If you don't want to wait for the next episode, you can subscribe to Brazen Plus on Apple Podcasts or at brazen.fm slash plus to binge the full series without ads. Whale Hunting is a production of Project Brazen. It's hosted by me, Tom Wright, and Bradley Hope. It's produced by Megan Dean and Claire Urban. At Project Brazen, Mariangel Gonzalez is our project manager Ryan Ho is the creative director, with additional design from Andrea Claridge. For more from Whale Hunting and to subscribe to our newsletter, visit whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. <laughs>